0: We're going to be looking at verse 17 through 26 today, and we're beginning this morning a new section in the book of Acts, a new section at least as far as we are concerned and how I have divided up the book of Acts. This last half of the book of Acts that deals with the Apostle Paul and his ministry and and his life, I have divided up into the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, and now we begin the fourth trip that the Apostle Paul takes, and that is his trip from Jerusalem to Rome. Now, I want you to, you probably don't have to write these numbers down, but at least I, I want in your mind to fix three numbers. Remember what these numbers are. First, the number 33; second, the number 58. And third, the number 25. 33, 58, 25. Now, all three of those numbers are related to each other, and, and here's how they're related. The very first Pentecost, the birth of the church in Jerusalem, The birthday of the church was in 33 A.D. As we arrive at Acts 21, with the Apostle Paul coming into Jerusalem, having finished his third missionary journey, we are now in 58 A.D. And the difference between those two dates is 25. 25 years from the beginning of the book of Acts to the point that we are at now in the book of Acts in Acts 21. Now the gospel of Jesus Christ has made a tremendous headway in those 25 years, hasn't it? It's only been 25 years, and the gospel has been planted in Jerusalem, and it has spread halfway to Rome. All of that mostly due to the persistent, consistent, tireless, relentless, passionate efforts of primarily one man, and that is Paul the Apostle. Other men had much to do with it. But as you see, the Christianity spread, geographically speaking, it was because of Paul. Now let me give you a few more numbers and these might kind of stun you at first. I counted up this last week the number of Roman provinces that the Apostle Paul visited. There were 11 of them. Judea, Syria, Phoenicia, Cilicia, Pamphylia, Galatia, Lycia, Asia, Macedonia, Achaia, Crete, the island of Crete, and those are the 11 provinces. And then if you count where he sent his Gospel, which is the book of Romans... If you count that province, that's 12 provinces that the Apostle Paul has either physically visited or sent his gospel by way of letter, the book of Romans. 11 provinces. Then there were the churches that Paul planted. There were 11 of those that we know of for sure. The one in Derby, one in Lystra, one in Iconium, one in Pisidian Antioch, one in Ephesus, one in Troas, one in Philippi, one in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Eleven churches. But then I think that the argument could be made, and I think that there would be a good case to say that the Apostle Paul was either directly responsible or at least oversaw and was thus indirectly responsible for planting churches in all of the cities that surrounded Ephesus. And those would include Pergamum, Sardis, Laodicea, Smyrna, Thyatira, Philippi, and Colos during those three years that Paul was in Ephesus. So if you add those churches into the mix, because Luke tells us in Acts 19 that while Paul was in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, then because of Paul and under his oversight, you have as a conservative estimate 18 churches that were planted by Paul. The cities that he visited, I didn't bother counting those up, there's dozens of them just where he stayed overnight or stopped in or went through on his way from one place to another. The books that he wrote, So far, by Acts 21, he's written six letters. Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the book of Romans. Now, we know that he wrote two other epistles to the Corinthians that are not preserved for us. And who knows how many other letters that he wrote to other churches and other cities that have not been preserved to us up till today. And then the miles that the Apostle Paul traveled. I counted these up. Now, I'm not counting anything that he did before his missionary journeys, just his three missionary journeys. Because we know that before he went on his mission trip, he traveled from uh, up to Damascus and then from Damascus to Jerusalem and then to Caesarea and then off to Tarsus and then Barnabas went and got him and he took him from Tarsus and took him up to Antioch and then they went back down to Jerusalem and then back up to Antioch again. Not counting any of that, just counting his three missionary journeys. The first missionary journey was 1,400 miles. Second missionary journey was 2,800 miles. Third missionary journey was 2,800 miles. That's 7,000 miles that he traveled, either walking, riding horseback or camelback or muleback or however they went in those days, or by boat. And is there any way to calculate the number of lives that have been impacted by the Apostle Paul? Just the number of people that he personally witnessed to, shared Christ to, discipled, taught publicly and from house to house, there are thousands who heard him, and men like Titus and Timothy and Trophimus and Luke and Aristarchus and Gaius and Priscilla and Aquila, all of those men and women who were first generation disciples of the Apostle Paul, hundreds of them, and then they multiplied his life and his ministry and there were thousands of people like Apollos who were affected by Priscilla and Aquila who were affected by Paul. And then is there any way to calculate this side of eternity, the number of people who have been affected over the last 2,000 years by his teachings, his preachings, his witnessing, his example, his beliefs and his letters? Millions upon millions upon millions. Eleven provinces, 18 churches, countless cities, countless people, six books, 7,000 miles, millions of lives changed. And all of that was done not in the 25 years that the church was in existence, And not over the course of a lifetime. All of that was accomplished by Paul between 48 A.D. and 58 A.D. Ten years. Ten years. Now let that sink in for a second. All of this from the man who called himself the very least of all the saints. Less than the least of all the apostles. You believe for one moment that's true? You believe for one moment that Paul was less than the least of all the saints? He did. He believed it with every atom of his being. He believed that he was less than the least of all of the saints, and yet Paul accomplished all of that, friends, in less than 10 years. You average that out, that's one Roman province evangelized every year for 10 years. That is, countless cities visited every year for 10 years. That's almost one inspired book every other year. That's 700 miles traveled every year and two churches planted every year, on average, for 10 years. That's what he did. Time to slow down? No. Time to retire? No. Time to take it easy for a little bit? Not for Paul. He makes a stunning statement in the book of Romans. He says when he writes to the Romans, and this is just before he comes back to Jerusalem on this third missionary journey, he says to the Romans, from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I fully preached the Gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. And then Paul goes on to say, there's no further room left for me in these regions. Do you hear what he's saying? From Jerusalem, he's standing in Macedonia in Achaia, and he says from Jerusalem all the way out east, Christ has been fully preached by me, so that there's no room for me in these regions. He wanted to preach Christ where he had never preached Christ before. But he's looking around in every direction as far as the eye can see. Every Roman province, Paul says, I've covered it all in ten years' time. In ten years' time, he effectively established the Gospel in one half of the Roman Empire. In fact, if you were to take the Roman Empire and go from from Jerusalem to Spain where it covered, and you were to draw a line right about down the middle of it, that's about as far as Paul had taken the gospel. Ten years, he had evangelized half the Roman Empire. But now Paul says, now for the other half. Now for the other half. Time to stop? Time to slow down? Slow down? Still half an empire to evangelize. So Paul sets his sights westward. And his trip from Jerusalem to Rome, How it is that the Lord got his apostle to the Gentiles, to the heart of Roman and Gentile civilization, how it is that the Lord got the gospel from Jerusalem all the way and the flag stuck right down in the center of the city of Rome with the apostle Paul there, that is the subject of these last eight chapters of the book of Acts. So turn to Acts chapter 21 and you'll need to be looking at verse 17. These verses, beginning at verse 17 all the way through verse 26 that we're going to be looking at this morning, those verses give us everything that precipitated, everything that preceded the arrest of the Apostle Paul. When we get to the end of the book of Acts, we know he's in prison, we know that he wrote certain books in prison, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, but we all not all of us, or at least we don't often think of what it was that led to his imprisonment. And these verses tell us what it was that led up to Paul's arrest. He wasn't just arrested in a vacuum. It wasn't an accident. There is something that has been fomenting and stirring and growing, a sentiment toward him, a hostility that has been growing for years. And Acts chapter 21, beginning of verse 17, brings us face to face with this hostility. And we're going to see what it is that leads to Paul's arrest. I want you to notice three things in these verses. The first is Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. Read with me verses 17 through the beginning of verse 20. Follow along as I read. Luke says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And while they heard it, they began glorifying God, verse 17, after three years, the Apostle Paul arrives back in Jerusalem. I don't know how bittersweet that would have been. Bitter because of all the prophecies regarding what he was going to face once he got to Jerusalem, but sweet because it's been three years since he was there. This is Paul's second home. This is where he was raised. This is where he went to school. This is where his all of his friends from before he was a believer were at were in Jerusalem. And he knew the high priest and he knew all the people and many families who were there. And of course, he knew many of the disciples who were in Jerusalem. And they arrive after three long years and Luke says they went in to James and the elders and Paul began to relate to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through him and through his ministry. Now, Luke says that they went in To the James and to all the elders. I want you to notice something significant there. And it's not significant because it's mentioned. It's significant because it's not mentioned. Do you know who's not mentioned as being in Jerusalem at the meeting? James is there. James was Peter's successor. He's an elder of the church. James and the elders are there, but who's absent? No mention of apostles. Where are the apostles? Where's Peter? Where's John? Where's all the other Jewish apostles? What were they doing? Where were they at at this time? Listen, friends, there has been a transition going on in the book of Acts, and it's been a slow transition, and you don't really see it until you go back to the beginning and kind of look at how Luke develops this. Twenty-five years ago when the church first started, they were committed to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship and breaking of bread, and they were committed to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles served as elders, as shepherds, functioning like that in the church. And then in Acts chapter 6, the burden for the ministry got so great upon them that they selected seven men from amongst the congregation to help out with serving the widows and taking some of the the benevolent and the the administrative tasks of the church upon themselves. And then in Acts chapter 11, we read, For the first time of elders, Paul Paul and Barnabas took the offering from Antioch up to the elders, gave it to the elders in the church in Jerusalem. By Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, we see not only elders mentioning, but elders taking a leadership role in the church. Because by Acts 15, they come, Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James, they all give their testimony at the Jerusalem Council concerning that issue of circumcision. And by Acts 15, some 15 years after the uh, birth of the church you have elders who are taking a leadership role and the apostles are sort of sitting back and letting them make some of these decisions and it's actually james who is an elder who writes that letter to all the gentiles saying you need to abstain from these four things do you remember that now here we are in acts chapter 21 the apostles are gone and who's shepherding the church in jerusalem elders what happened to the apostles well some of them had died either from persecution or by natural causes and some of them had gone, like Peter and John, we know, went on larger uh, traveling ministries like Paul did. And they had discipled these men in the church and turned it over to the elders and sort of walked away from it. And so they're not even present there. And Paul and the men who are with him, they go in to the elders and they begin to relate one by one the things that God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. And I think it took Paul, the Apostle Paul and those men a lot longer than it took me last week to review all of that for you. One by one, all of the things that God did through him amongst the Gentiles. All the miracles and the teaching and the lives that were changed and all of that. You can imagine the Apostle Paul sitting down with these elders in Jerusalem and doing that. And look, they rejoice. And I want you to notice how Luke accurately records Paul's attitude. It was what God did through him. The Apostle Paul did not report what he did. You notice that? The Apostle Paul did not meet back and say, Listen to what I have done. Listen to how the Lord has blessed me. Listen to what I have accomplished among the Gentiles. And did Paul have something about which to boast? He had 11 churches that he had planted. 18 actually by this point. All the books that he had written. All the lives that had been changed. All of the miracles. All of the provinces. All of the miles. If anybody could boast of what he had done for the Lord, it would be the Apostle Paul. But Luke says he reported what the Lord did through him. And friends, that was Paul's perspective. You want to know why he was able to accomplish all that he did in those ten years? It was because of two things. Number one, because he honestly viewed himself as least of all the saints. And number two, because he honestly believed that it was God who did it, not him. He honestly believed that he was just a servant through whom people believed. He honestly believed that if anything happened, it was because the Lord had mercy upon him and did it through him. That's what he told the Corinthians. Who is Apollos and who is Paul except servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave opportunity? Who are we? We're nothing but mere men. That was Paul's attitude. Humble man of God. That's why he was able to accomplish so much in such a small amount of time. At least one of the reasons why he was able to accomplish that. He reported what the Lord did through him among the Gentiles. And they began praising God for what they heard. That's what verse 20 said. They started praising the Lord. They didn't praise Paul because they recognized the same thing that Paul did. This was the Lord's work that He was accomplishing through Paul, and so God gets the glory. And when you do the work and you take the credit, who gets the glory? You do. But when you honestly believe and minister as if it is the Lord who does this... He uses me, whatever my talents and my giftedness might be, He uses me to accomplish it, then you give Him praise and glory. And there's no man who has any reason to stand before God and accept credit for what happens. Because it's the Lord who does it. Well, they go in amongst the elders. Paul begins to share to them everything that happens. And they hear this and they're rejoicing. They think this is great. They begin praising God for what has happened. They're giving God honor and glory and praise for all that he has done through Paul. And everything sounds great. There is there is harmony there. There is love there. All of the brethren are meeting together. The elders, Paul, and they're all together praising God for what has happened amongst the Gentiles. It sounds good, doesn't it? There's a problem. The big problem. Verse 20 tells us what the problem was. Verse 20, the end of the verse, or... Part B says that they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands... And this I want you to notice. These are the accusations against Paul. This is the second thing I want you to notice. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. There's a problem? What is the problem? After they give praise and glory to God for what has happened through Paul, what the Lord has done, they say, Paul, we have a very serious situation. Here is the situation. You yourself see. That's the first thing they say. You see how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed who are zealous for the law. You see is the translation of a Greek word that means to perceive something and then to ponder it and to turn it over in your mind. It's not just that Paul had... had noticed it in passing, this was something that Paul had recognized, he had fixed in on, he had been thinking about it, he understood what the problem was as well. You see, brother, how many there are among the Jews who have believed. These are believing Christians who are Jews, and they say they are zealous for the law. So these are not Jews, these are Jews who have become believers. This is a better way of explaining it. These are Jews who have become believers who are still zealous for the things of the law. They like the customs. They like the vows. They like the outward trappings of their Jewry. Their, not jewelry, but Jewry, their Jewishness. All of their Jewish culture, their customs. These are, when they were, became Christians, they were still Jews. And they had hundreds of years of culture and upbringing and tradition that had always been part of everything that they had done. And now they have become believers and they see no reason to abandon all of their Jewishness because for them, their Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is the fulfillment of all of their Jewish cultures and customs. So as they go to celebrate the Passover, they're not doing it for salvation. They're doing it as a remembrance, as an honor, as part of their culture because now these things have taken on a whole new significance for them. Because now they understand that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. And they're very zealous for the law. Not only do they themselves want to continue with the culture and the customs and all the trappings of it, but they want other people to do that as well. They don't want to lose their national heritage. They don't want to lose their Jewish identity. They don't want to become in practice, in looks, in culture, in behavior, and in lifestyle like the Gentiles. They don't want that. And they're trying to zealously guard their own national identity, their own culture and their customs, their law. God had given this to them and that's how they saw it. And so they're partaking in these things. And listen, the apostles never asked them to abandon those practices. The apostles many times participated with them in those practices. You remember right after people got saved, after the day of Pentecost, it says Peter and John went where? To worship. Right in the temple, at the hour of prayer. That's what they did. That's what they had always done. That's what they did. So they took their worship service, their Christian Jewish worship service, right into the temple and began to worship Christ right there in the temple. They were Jews when they got saved, and after they got saved, they kept living like Jews. And there was nothing wrong with that. You and I find this hard to, hard to relate to, don't we? No? You find it easy to relate to? Hey, you don't want to lose your national identity, do you? There's something distinctly unique about being an American. And when something threatens our American identity and our American culture and our American way of life, we want to zealously guard that. It was the same way with them. We have a hard time understanding why they would want to participate in all the Jewish customs until you understand that, hey, part of being an American is flying a flag. And we think nothing of flying a flag while we're a Christian. We think nothing of 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 worshiping God on the 4th of July and thanking Him for what we have and partaking of our American customs and integrating them into our Christianity. It was the same thing with them and their Jewish customs and their Jewish cultures. They were zealous for their national identity. Well, this posed a problem. What was the problem? The problem was that certain things were being said about Paul. Do you notice how Luke says it in the text? They, that is the believing Christians... And and they're Christians. They're not trusting in their culture and their customs for salvation or righteousness or sanctification. They're believing Jews who are zealous for the law, but they had been told about Paul. Interesting word. It's the word catecheo, And it's the word from which we get our English word catechize. It means to drill into somebody's head by constant repetition. This was not just a rumor that had been floating around. This is something that the Judaizers, the false teachers, the opponents of Paul's gospel had come into the church in Jerusalem and they had drilled into the heads of the believers these false accusations against Paul. What were the accusations? Well, look at them. They have been told, they have been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews among the Gentiles. Paul, in every city that you go to, they're saying that you're meeting with the Jews and you're telling the Jews to abandon or forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and not to walk according to the customs. As you go out from city to city, they're hearing, they're being told about you, that you're teaching the Jews to abandon all of their Judaistic principles, their cultures, their customs, their way of life. And this was causing hostility, listen, not amongst the unbelieving Jews, amongst believers. There were, can you imagine this? believing Christian Jews in Jerusalem who had this prejudice against the Apostle Paul. And when he showed up in Jerusalem, there was hostility there. Because we have heard concerning you that you're teaching all of the Jews out there to forsake Moses, not to circumcise their children, and not to walk according to the customs. Their mind has already been made up against Paul. Now, if that's the way the believing Jews felt about Paul, how do you think the unbelieving Jews felt about Paul? How do you think the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of Paul's day, how do you think the leaders in the synagogue in Jerusalem felt about Paul? When these rumors were being circulated about Paul that this was going on. Now, were they true? Is there any truth to those rumors? Did Paul ever, can you think of any time in any of his writings, that the Apostle Paul told a Jew or commanded Jews to forsake Moses? Never. Not once. Forsake the law? No, Paul said the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding that the law was not made for a righteous man, but for sinners and for ungodly and for homosexuals and adulterers and, and, and rebellious people. That's what the law was made for. The law is holy and righteous and good. But the law cannot make you holy and righteous and good. The law itself is the standard that shows us how sinful we are. So did Paul have a problem with Moses and the law? No, those things are holy. Paul didn't have a problem with those things. He did have a problem if you said you can gain righteousness by the law. That's where Paul would part company with you. He did have a problem if you thought you could be sanctified or saved by the law. That's where Paul would part company. Can you think of anything in the life of the Apostle Paul that we have covered so far in the book of Acts that would indicate to you that Paul did not teach the Jews to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children? Can you think of any incident in the book of Acts so far where the Apostle Paul did something that would prove positively that he did not teach others to forsake circumcision or to not circumcise their children? Timothy. Oh, yeah, remember Timothy? What did Paul do to Timothy before he took him on his missionary journey? Circumcised him. Right? Now here's Timothy standing with Paul in the presence of these elders, and he's hearing these false accusations against Paul. We're hearing that you're telling people not to circumcise their children. And Timothy has to be standing there saying, (coughs) second missionary journey, not long after I met this guy and decided to go on a missionary journey, he required me to be circumcised. Why did Paul do that? Because it's necessary for salvation? No. Because it's necessary for sanctification? No. Do you have to be circumcised to be a Christian? No. Titus was proof of that. Why did he circumcise Timothy? Because Timothy was half Jew, half Gentile, and if Paul's going to take Timothy with him to take the Gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, and Timothy was an uncircumcised Jew, then the Jews would see that as a stumbling block. They wouldn't be able to get past that. And Paul circumcised Timothy to keep rumors like this from starting. Apparently it didn't work. Timothy was proof positive that Paul did never taught anybody not to circumcise their children. Now, what is circumcision to Paul? Paul says it's not anything. Doesn't profit you anything. You want to circumcise your children? Fine. Just don't think that it gains you anything. It's not the sign of the covenant. That was the old covenant, the old way of things. It's not an indication of that. It doesn't get you salvation, doesn't get you sanctification, doesn't make you holy, doesn't profit you anything at all. But if you want to circumcise your child because it's a matter of your conscience and you can't you can't possibly do it because it's a cultural thing and you feel it's necessary, Paul says fine. Just doesn't profit you anything. He would never command you not to do it. He would never command you to do it. Just so long as you don't require Gentiles to live like Jews and become circumcised. They're saying that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles not to circumcise children and not to walk according to the customs. Now, can you think of anything in the book of Acts that we've looked at so far where the Apostle Paul would have done something that would demonstrate to everybody that he does not tell people to forsake the customs? Remember when he had his head shaved? What was that about? Nazarite vow. The Apostle Paul himself took a Nazarite vow. And here he's coming back to Jerusalem to be in Jerusalem for what? Pentecost. Celebration of a Jewish feast. And these people have the audacity to circulate rumors about him that he's abandoning the Mosaic customs. And he hasn't. He took a Nazarite vow. He shaved his head and ended his second missionary journey. And now this time he's coming back. He's hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost so he can celebrate the Jewish feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. So is Paul abandoning the customs? Not at all. Friends, this is a good illustration of why you never, ever accept an accusation against an individual, another believer, especially when it comes from somebody who is an opponent of the gospel. Yet we're very quick, aren't we, to turn our ears toward some accusation or some information that casts another person, particularly a believer, in a in a poor light. This is why Paul said you never accept an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. These people had believed a lie about Paul. Because if you tell a lie loud enough and long enough and often enough, people will come to believe it's the truth. And once they make up their mind about you, there's nothing you can do that will demonstrate to them that what is being said about you as false. Well, that wasn't the only problem. You say, that's bad enough that all of these Christians have this ingrained prejudice against the Apostle Paul. The unbelieving Jews had to have hated him far more than any of the believing Christians had had animosity toward him, but it gets even worse than that. You see, friends, at the time, and this is why James is mentioning this to Paul, there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, and the issue is this. The Apostle Paul has arrived back from Gentile lands with Gentile money, offering for the church in Jerusalem. And according to all of the undercurrent, the anti-Jewish sentiment, which was very strong, the Jews viewed anybody who patronized with a Roman or a Gentile as a traitor. They would look at them askance. And so here was a man who had gone out and had eaten with unclean people, unclean foods in unclean lands. And he had turned these unclean people to a what Paul viewed as a Jewish Messiah. And so they were looking at him askance. They were looking him out of the corner of their eye. How could this guy be trusted? As far as the Jews in Jerusalem were concerned, Paul was a traitor to his nation, a traitor to his people, a traitor to their Messianic hosts, a traitor to their national identity, a traitor to Moses, a traitor to the customs and the cultures, and everything that made them Jews. He was undermining all of that. That's why they hated him. Now for the believing Jews in Jerusalem to have their hand of blessing upon the Apostle Paul... That runs the risk of saying something to the unbelieving Jews here in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Is the church in Jerusalem going to lay their hands upon this lawless man who's destroying our national Jewish identity? And furthermore, he's brought Jewish or Gentile money into Jerusalem for the church. And listen, if the church accepts the money, which they did, if the church accepts the money, it might be seen as fraternizing with uh, Gentiles and Romans. They hated Gentiles and Romans. This could destroy James and the elders, their opportunity to witness to unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. Because what law-abiding, God-fearing, God-loving Jewish Jew in Jerusalem would ever want to join a church that fraternized with the likes of a man like Paul? What Jew would ever want to be part of that church? These people are, are taking part in undermining our national identity. Do you know that when Paul wrote to the Romans, he said to the Romans in Romans 15, I'm bringing my offering back to Jerusalem And he mentioned there that he was had a concern that his service, that gift, might not be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem. If perhaps it is acceptable, he said, there's some question there. What if he got to Jerusalem with all of that money from Gentile believers and they said, hey, we don't want your stinking Gentile money. We don't want it. And we're not going to take it because if we take it, it's going to make us look like we're fraternizing with you and you're the enemy. What if that were to happen? So now the elders, James, they're kind of in the middle of this, between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, if we give our blessing to Paul publicly, because of the rumors that are circulating, that's going to do damage to us. At the same time, they know that the rumors are not are not true. They don't want to be seen as compromising, but they're kind of in this difficult position. So they say to Paul, you see what the situation is? Here's the problem. Here's what's being said about you. Now they need a solution. They need a way to, to, to put these fears, these accusations to rest. So they come up with a solution. The third thing I want you to notice is the accommodations that Paul makes to them. It says in verse 22, What then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you've come. I mean, you can't smuggle the Apostle Paul into Jerusalem and out again without people noticing. They're going to hear that you've come. He's there to celebrate a Pentecost. You go into the temple, somebody's going to put an eye or a bead on the Apostle Paul. And so James and the elders, they want to do something to sort of blunt the force of the fact that he's come. As far as I can see, friends, this so far is a private, very undercover, very quiet meeting between Paul and the elders in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that any of the other believers were there, just the leadership of the church and Paul, and they're expressing this concern to him. These are the accusations that have been made. People are going to hear that you have come here from Gentile lands, so here is what we ask you to do. Look at this suggestion. Therefore do this that we tell you, verse 23, we have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there's nothing to the things which have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Here's our proposal, James says. We have four men who have taken a Nazarite vow. The days of their purification have come up. The the Nazarite vow is over. They For at least 30 days, the Nazarite vow required that they not defile themselves by eating grapes or drinking wine touching a dead body, and that they not shave their heads. And here's how a Nazarite vow worked. At the end of the 30 days, or whatever period it was that you took the vow for, and the vow was taken for the purpose of giving thanks and, and, and gratitude to God for something that He had provided, at the end of that 30 days they would shave their head, they would take it to the temple, and they would offer an offering. One male lamb, one female lamb, one ram, a basket of bread, a drink offering, and a grain offering. They would give this to the priest and the priest would burn the offering and then he would offer the hair as part of that burnt offering to the Lord and that would finish up their Nazarite vow. So here's their proposal. Paul, you're unclean so you have to go in and purify yourself and then you can sponsor the expenses of these four men. Paul was considered unclean because not because he had taken a vow but because he had spent so much time in Gentile lands with Gentile people, he couldn't go into the temple and participate in the ceremonies. So he had to go in to cleanse himself ceremonial. So they say, you go in and you go through your ceremonial cleansing and then you take these four men, you take them down to the temple and you provide their offerings. You pay their expenses. You provide the four male lambs, the four female lambs, the four rams, the four baskets of bread, the four drink offerings and the four grain offerings. Now, friends, that's some change right there. That's an expensive offering. and Nazarite vow itself was an expensive offering, and they're asking Paul to do that times four for these four men. So you go in and act as their sponsor, pay their expenses, and you go through the purification rites with them, and you'll be seen as participating with them and identifying with them, and this will allow everybody to see that you're not hostile to our customs, that you're not hostile to our Jewish way of life, and that you yourself participate in some of these things pertaining to the law. Does that make sense? This would be very public. Everybody could see Well, hey, if this is true about the Apostle Paul, everything we hear about him being a lawbreaker, then what's he doing here in the temple taking part in the Nazarite vow for these four men who have taken the vow? He's not hostile after all. does that sound like a good idea to you? Maybe don't answer publicly because I don't want to embarrass you. Does that sound like a good idea? Friends, to me that sounds like a wonderful idea. To Paul it sounded like a wonderful idea. Now, some people, critics of the book of Acts would say, He's compromising his principles. He's compromising the gospel. He's partaking in these customs in order to, to appease his opponents or to curry favor with the Jews. No, friends, that's not it at all. That's not why the Apostle Paul's doing this. You see, James, this is not a compromise of principle, and that's evident from verse 25. I want you to notice verse 25 because that's key. Verse 25 says, But, this is James still, But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Does that sound familiar? Where does that come from? Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. That was the letter that James wrote. And the subject in Acts 15 was Gentiles and what must they do to be saved? So Paul gave his testimony. Peter gave his testimony. James got up and talked about um, the Old Testament and how it foresaw the salvation of Gentiles and so then they wrote the letter to all of the Gentiles and said hey nothing is required for you to get saved other than faith alone but in order to avoid a division within the church in order to have fellowship with your Jewish brethren just make some basic accommodations and these are them and those are the four things so James says in verse 25 he reaffirms what they already decided at the Jerusalem council this is not a gospel issue this is not a principle a gospel principle this is not a, a hard line issue of truth James is saying we're reaffirming that salvation is by grace through faith, but in order to not offend the Jews, in order to reach those who are under the law, Paul, would you please put yourself under the law for a period of time, partake in the customs in order to demonstrate that you don't have a problem with these things and that this is not what you're teaching. Friends, that is a brilliant compromise. It would have worked out perfectly. James is not asking Paul to do anything that Paul hasn't done before. And as far as Paul's concerned, these are matters that are indifferent. Look, does circumcision really matter? No. Does Nazarite vow does that really matter? Whether you take the Nazarite vow or not take the Nazarite vow, does Paul care? No. But he already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to those who are under the law, I'll live like I'm under the law in order that I may reach them. To those who are weak, I'll become weak to reach the weak. To the to the Gentile, to those who are without the law, I'll become as un, without the law. Although I'm under the law of Christ, I'll become as one who is without the law in order that I may win them. It's just a conscience issue. If they have a hard time with it in their conscience, Paul says, I'll go along with that. I don't want to offend them. I want to reach them. So he partakes in a Nazarite vow. To Paul, it's it's nothing. It's not one thing or the other. And if this is a violation of their conscience, to hear these things about Paul and to be taught those things, Paul will gladly accommodate in his own liberty, partake in something that to him was neither yea or nay, in order to help with the unity. And so in love and in humility, Paul concedes to their request. Verse 26 Says, then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. In other words, what Paul did is he went into the temple, he started his own purification ceremony, which would take a week, and then he made arrangements. At the end of this week, when he was ceremonial, he cleaned, he made the arrangements for the sacrifices and the completion of the ceremony for those four men basically he scheduled their sacrifices and scheduled their ceremonies so that he could participate in it right in front of everybody. So this would be on record for a week. The Apostle Paul was going to be in the temple partaking of the ceremony of these men and everybody could see him. What a great accommodation. Now you might think that having bent over backwards to convince people that what was being said about him was not true, that that would work. Did it work? No. You know what, folks? When somebody has their mind made up about what you are and what you teach and who you are and what you believe and what kind of a person you are and it's all based upon lies, when somebody believes that and they've got their mind made up about that, there is nothing, trust me, nothing you can say and nothing you can do that will change their minds. But Paul is willing for the sake of unity, for the sake of love, for the sake of his Christian brethren, to participate in this ceremony. And this was going to mark the beginning of the end of Paul's freedom in the book of Acts. The beginning of the end. Because the sufferings and the afflictions and the chains that he's been promised are only days away. The Apostle Paul wants to get to Rome. How is God going to get him to Rome? Well, the first step from Jerusalem to Rome happens next week and we'll look at that when we get to it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things that we learn from your word. We thank you that you have given us an example in Paul of what it means to be maligned and accused and slandered and yet an individual who loved the brethren even in spite of that. We thank you, Father, for your grace which is able to to bless us and to give us the right attitude in the midst of suffering and the right attitude in the midst of hostility. And we pray that as a result of our time here spent together in your word that we would have come to a better understanding of what your word teaches concerning the law and our relationship to it, and how we are to treat believers who have a weaker conscience than we do. Thank you for your grace, which is sufficient for all things. And thank you for your wonderful and marvelous word in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.